So we're going to begin in the book of Ecclesiastes this morning. And then we're going to go for a stint in uh, 1 Kings and then over into 2 Chronicles. No, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles. I get those confused. Uh, but anyway, that's what we're going to be doing. And as we start out this, it makes me think of a, a little story that I heard. And it was of a kid, a little kid, a little boy, who was talking with his mommy and said, Mom, why are we here? What are we here for? And the mom thought about it and said, Well, honey, we're here to help make other people's lives better. And the little boy thought about it and his response was, so what are the other people here for? Why are they here? And this issue of why am I here? What's my purpose? What value is life is something that is so prevalent in our world today. People are asking why they're here, what life is about. I hear people say, hey, you know what? Life's short and then you die, or life sucks and then you die, or live fast, die young, or make the most of the day because you know what? Hey, we just don't know what's gonna be tomorrow. And so this idea of futility, and you watch our society chase after so many things, trying to find purpose and meaning and identity and hope, chasing after things, chasing after their 15 minutes of fame, you know, on TikTok or Snapchat or something like that. They're chasing after um, identity and sexuality and acceptance, all trying to figure out why does my life matter? What's going to satisfy me? And you can look at social media, you look at the news, you look all over the place, and we have a world that is very dissatisfied with life. Have you ever been there? You know, I remember when, when I hit, you know, I, I hit that, that phase in my life. I, I don't think I ever had a midlife crisis, but it was just, I've, I've had those times when I've looked back in my life and go, what have I accomplished? What, what's the outcome? What good is all the stuff I've done? looking back at my failures and all of that and saying, you know, this is just, what's the purpose of it all? Being dissatisfied, you know, by this time in my life, I had expected this, this, and this. Well, that didn't happen. Life can be disappointing if it's not connected where it needs to be connected. And that's what we're going to see this morning. In Ecclesiastes, it's, believe that this was written by the song of, by Solomon because of what was the way he identifies himself and all, but you know, you can't be dogmatic, but it seems pretty much that it's him. And in chapter one, it begins out with the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. And then this famous statement, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes, a generation comes, but the earth remains the same forever. Nothing ever changes. 
The sun rises, the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind. And on its circuits, the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Wow. The word there, vanity, means empty. There's just nothing. You ever chase after something and it just ends up not satisfying you? You know, I remember like when I was a kid and it's like, okay, Christmas time. And I really wanted this present and I get the present. It's like, boy, that wasn't what I thought it was going to be. Or as an adult, you know, doing things and go, wow, that, that was kind of a letdown. Oh, well. This word here, vanity, get this. In 27 verses, this word is used 34 times. You think he's trying to make a point? Life just doesn't have any value. But notice he says, under the sun, just regular living life, day to day, all right, year to year. Under the sun, 28 times this is said in 26 verses. The futility of life just for the sake of living and pursuing things. It's a vapor is what he's saying. In chapter 2, what we see Solomon talk about is just the things that he began to pursue. He pursued wisdom for the sake of wisdom. He pursued pleasure. He pursued great, you know, architectural designs and all sorts of things and possessions and business ventures that he, he went after. And look at his heart with all of this. And I want you to be really tuned into how he says wisdom is involved with this, okay? He says, I said in my heart, all right, this is the wisest guy that ever lived. Come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this was also vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. You know, partying and getting drunk and all that. My heart still, listen to this, my heart still guiding me with wisdom. So he's wise. He knows what's good. He knows what's best. But he's like, you know what? I'm, I'm going to just try this out, you know? Wisdom for the sake of wisdom, we'll see in a minute. It's like, you know, yeah, it's a good thing, but it's not everything. So let's go ahead and try alcohol and partying and, and just having fun and letting me enjoy all the pleasures I possibly can. But his wisdom is still with him. And he says, and how to hold on to folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. And then he says, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks and planted them with all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to uh, water the forests of growing trees. 
I bought male and female servants and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. So you get that? It's like he still knows that wisdom that God gave him. It's still there, but he's chasing after all this stuff because he's not satisfied. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered that all my hands had done, and the toil that I expended in doing it, and behold, all this was vanity and striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So here's this guy, the wisest guy who ever lived, and he's assessing all the pleasures, all the possessions, all the vast things he could build for his own life, houses and palaces and gardens and pools. I mean, the guy had everything. What was coming in annually to his treasury was in excess of uh, several, tri like $1.4 trillion, 666 talents of gold. That's a lot of cash, and that's just the gold. All this stuff is coming in, and he's saying, you know what? This is empty. And we see that in our society. People chasing after the bigger houses, the bigger cars. Having things isn't bad. Remember, God blessed Solomon with wealth and with uh, all sorts of blessings and everything. But to live for those things, that's where the problem comes in. When we make that our idol, remember Jesus said you can't serve God and mammon. You're going to love one and hate the other. Mammon is material possessions and stuff. You can't love it. You can't serve it and serve God at the same time. And this is the problem that Solomon had. Remember David prayed for his son before David died. He said, Lord, give him a whole heart that he might know you and fear your name and keep your commandments. Give him a whole heart. David prayed that same prayer for himself. Unite my heart to fear your name, O Lord. We saw that in the Psalms. The understanding was that the, the meaning of life and the goodness of life come from that wholehearted living for the Lord. Okay, not a divided heart. But Solomon's heart was divided. It was for the Lord initially, but then he started going off track. And in verse 12, he says, I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. But go on down to verse 16 and look what he ends up saying. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance. It doesn't matter if you're wise or a fool, you're going to be forgotten. Seeing that in those days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and striving after the wind. Wow. 
chasing after everything and realizing that once you have it all, it's really nothing. If we go on, and he just reiterates these kind of things over and over in different ways, just contrasting wisdom and folly and the righteousness and the unrighteous and how no matter who you are or whatever, hey, we're all going to die. You're going to work your fingers to the bone and you're going to end up handing it all over to somebody else once you're gone and you don't know how they're going to handle it. And it's just sad. And then going on to chapter 8, let's jump over there. And he switches to this understanding that, or not the understanding, but just asking why do bad things happen to good people and vice versa? In chapter 14, he says, there is a vanity, an emptiness that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said, this is also vanity. And I commend joy for man who has nothing better under the sun but to eat and to drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil throughout the days of life that God has given him under the sun. Basically, you know what? It's like righteous people suffer. Good people get, I mean, bad people get blessed. This doesn't make sense. You know, just live life under the sun. You know, and he says, in verse 16, when I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. So, Solomon's like, you know, I've sought wisdom. I've tried to understand this all. And the bottom line is, you're never going to understand God's ways. You're never going to figure it out. And if a guy says he has figured it out, you can be guaranteed he really hasn't. There's just no way. God is so far beyond us. His ways are beyond us. And then Solomon in chapter 9 begins to kind of bring this down to the core after a life of chasing after the wind. And we're going to see how this impacts his life in just a few minutes. He brings it all back down. And the thing is, he goes right back to the beginning of what his daddy prayed for him about. A heart that's undivided toward the Lord. In verse 7 of chapter 9, he says... Go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. For God already approved what you do. That's a, that's a way of saying, okay, you know, the way that it reads is, is basically this. Live your life, eat your bread, drink your wine, enjoy life. This is what God's given you to do, okay? Life is supposed to be something we enjoy. Unfortunately, we've bought into that mindset of there's always greener grass on the other side of the fence or chasing after something better. If I just have this car, if I just have this, if I just have that. There's, a, there's an old song that Ricky Skaggs did and it's called You Can't Take It With You When You Go. And he's talking about he doesn't have a whole lot, 
but he's got an enjoyable life. He's got a friend who has a big house, big boat, big cars, everything, a lot of money, but he's so busy in pursuing those things, he's not enjoying life. And one of the, the phrases in the song is, my little boat's in the water, his boat, big boat is in the yard. He's not on the water enjoying the big boat because he's pursuing all the money and everything to try to get the big boat, the big house, big car. And we buy into that and we weary ourselves chasing after bigger and better things when in fact it's the simplicity of life. Paul says godliness with contentment is great gain. You know, just having what you need, it doesn't mean that having a lot is bad. God blesses us with stuff and it doesn't mean having wealth is bad. It's the pursuit of those things and making them our gods, that's what kills us. That's what causes the problems. So Solomon's bringing it all down to, hey, you know what? Eat your bread with joy, drink your wine with a merry heart. This is what God intended. Let your garments always be white. Live a, live a life of purity, you know? Live a life pleasing to the Lord. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. This is coming from the guy who had 700 wives and 300 concubines. We live in a society where, hey, you know what? Just one night stands and, and bouncing from partner to partner and all that stuff, that'll make you happy. It doesn't make you happy. Solomon of all people knew that having multiple relationships and encounters does not satisfy. So he says, just, you know, enjoy the wife of your youth. Just be with her all the days, and the way he says it, all the days of your vain life. It's like, oh, dude, you've, you've got some chips on your shoulder there. But he says, this is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. You know, don't chase the stuff that doesn't matter. Godliness with contentment is great gain, but Solomon wasn't content. God had blessed him so much, and then he's like, well, what else is there? And in that divided heart, he starts going astray. In chapter 11, he says, Rejoice, O young man, in your youth. Verse 9, And let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation that's anxiety, from your heart and put away pain, the word is literally evil, from your body, for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. They're fleeting, they're quick. You know how, you know, I remember when I was younger and it's just like the idea of the future being near to me was like, no, I. If you're old enough, you'll probably remember there was a there was a TV show called Space 1999, okay, and there was going to be a a uh, uh, moon base, all right. And I thought it was the coolest show, you know. And I had my little laser gun and stuff like that when I was a kid, and I was thinking, wow, 1999 is so far away, and wow, we're going to have spaceships and we're going to be on the moon and all this stuff, and it's going to be awesome, and then time goes by and the next thing you know, 
Y2K is on right at your doorstep and people are freaking out going, you know, I'm thinking when I'm a kid, wow, we're going to be on the moon and all this stuff. And now here I am, you know, I'm in my 20s and people are freaking out because their computers, they think are going to fritz out and they won't even be able to get water, you know, or groceries and things like, wow, we never really got as far as I thought we would. But the future seems so far away. And what Solomon's saying is, hey, for you young people, enjoy life. Make the most of it. Pursue the dire desires of your heart. But make sure you remember that God is, is going to judge you, okay? Don't just do whatever you want. But enjoy your life as a young person because it's so short. And then you're dealing with all the things of when you're older in life. You know, the, the things of, you know, paying the bills and making ends meet and car repairs and all that other stuff. And when you're young, you still have some of that stuff, but you don't have all the things attached to you as when you get older. Enjoy it. And then chapter 12, he wraps everything up. Okay? This is where he brings it all together. Chapter 12, verse 11. The words of the wise are like goads. Okay? Those are pointed sticks that you would kind of get the cattle to move. You know, they prompt you, okay? The words of the wise are like goads. Like nails firmly fixed are collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. They're God-given. And he says, my son, that would have been Rehoboam, okay? My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end. And much study is a weariness of the flesh, you know, you can read and search and search and search and it just wears you down. And then he says in verse 13, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or or evil. So he wraps it all up with that statement. Okay, gang, everything in this world on its own is vanity. It's empty. It's shallow. It's not satisfying in and of itself. So he says, fear God and keep his commandments. And it says, for this is the whole duty of man. That's kind of a accurate translation but not quite the new american standard says this applies to every man close but not quite the literal hebrew for that statement is this is the whole man this is the whole man how are we made whole remember david made that prayer Lord, unite my heart, make my heart whole that I might fear your name. He prayed for Solomon, God, give him a whole heart that he'll walk with you. So a whole life, a whole completed life where we're feeling satisfied is the things of earth and the things of heaven fused together in our relationship with the Lord. That's where we have meaning. That's where we have hope. That's where we find satisfaction. It's in our relationship with the Lord. 
And then everything else matters. And we'll see this now as we go into Kings, where we see the divided hearts. And we're going to see things that these kings did that brought about the very things that robbed them of all the great things that God actually promised them. Because they didn't have this part. They didn't have that whole heart. See, that's the way we're created, right? Remember, work isn't bad, okay? <laughs> People say work is a four-letter word, you know? And, you know, the reality is if we're just living for this life and we don't have a job that we want to do and it's not satisfying, it can be a real wearisome thing, you know? And this really speaks to me because it's like, I have a job that I do and it's, I don't, I don't gain satisfaction in what I do when I do the nine to five. It does not make me feel whole and it doesn't make me feel like, wow, I'm so proud of what I do. Okay. I thank God for the job I have and it's a good job. But what this has really made me think is, you know what? I may not find satisfaction from my job, okay? But if I'm doing it for the Lord, because the Bible says, whatsoever you do in word and deed, do all to the glory of God. If I'm doing it for him, I can be satisfied in my job. Walking away from it going, you know what? I was salt and light today amongst my coworkers. <clears throat> Praise God, that was, that was good. Or, you know what? This person was really stressed out and freaking out and everything. And I was able to bless them and help them with their problem and what they were dealing with. Thank you, God. And those are those things where I may not be getting satisfaction from the job, but I'm getting satisfaction in the job. Does that make sense? You know, it's a very different thing because you're not trying to get your meaning and your purpose. I, I used to have that as a pastor. My being a pastor was an identity. That's what I am. No. I learned, no, that's not who I am. I'm a son of God. I'm a child of God. And that's what he gave me to do. But when my identity was what I did, not who I was in Christ, when things didn't go well with what I did and there were challenges and problems in ministry, I felt like I was worthless and I wasn't satisfied. So you can even have a great job, even doing the very thing you want to do. But if it becomes your identity, then it's not going to satisfy. We want to do things with the Lord and for the Lord, no matter what it might be. So that being said, let's take off now to 1 Kings. And we're in 1 Kings chapter, not that one. Okay, so chapter 10. That's where we pick up for this week in Kings. And we won't go into the Queen of Sheba and all that stuff, but we, we know the story. She hears of everything. This is chapter 10. And uh, she hears of the grandeur and the glory and all of the wisdom of Solomon. And all and She says, I got to check this out for myself. And when she does, it says her breath was taken away. She was just like, ah, 
this isn't half of what I was told. It blew her mind and he was answering her questions and all of that. But I want you to draw attention to chapter 10, verse one. Now, when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. Did you get that? She heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name, the name of God, the name of the Lord. The two were connected. His fame was because he was connected to the name. He had a relationship with the Lord. He followed the Lord with his whole heart. He sought the Lord. He prayed for wisdom and guidance to do the work of the Lord. That's the way it started out. So the fame was tied to his relationship with the Lord. Going back to what we saw in chapter 12 of Ecclesiastes, this is what it's all about. Fear the Lord, obey his commandments. That's the whole of man. That's what makes the whole man, the whole person. And so we'll leave that part behind now. We just know that it blew her mind and, and it, was, it was just fantastic. Um, chapter 28, it's, or um, chapter tw verse 24, I'm sorry. And the whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put into his mind. Okay? So there it is. The two are connected. What he had was God-given. It was based upon the relationship. And people were hungry and they were looking to the things of God that God had given Solomon. And then in verse 25, look at what happens. And Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen. He had 14,000 chariots and 12,000 horsemen. 1,400 chariots, 12,000 horsemen. Whom he stationed in the chariot cities and with the king in Jerusalem. And the king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stone. And he made cedar as plentiful as the sycamore of Shephelah. I don't know where that is. And Solomon's import of horses was from Egypt and Ku. And the king's traders received them from Ku at a price. A chariot could be imported from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. And so through the through the king's traders, they were exported to all the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Syria. Now, back in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 14 through 20, okay? This is, if you remember, God said, okay, this is what I want you to remind the kings that will come. They are not to heap up for themselves silver and gold. They're not to, supposed to pursue their own wealth, okay? They're not supposed to heap up for themselves slaves. They're not supposed to heap up for themselves chariots and horses. And specifically, they are not to trade with Egypt for horses and chariots. It also says the king is to write himself a copy of the law of God so that he will fear God and obey his commandments. So Solomon would have written his own copy of the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and, um, and Numbers, okay? He would have written that in his own hand. He would have known this 
the wisest guy that ever lived. But yet, as he's pursuing all that stuff, you know, because remember, Ecclesiastes, he says, I determined that I was just going to hold nothing back. I was going to pursue anything and everything. And this is what's happening here. And then in chapter 11, it says, Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn your heart after other gods. Solomon clung to these in love. Going back to Deuteronomy 17, God specifically says the king of Israel is not to do what Solomon was doing for the very reason that's mentioned here, because they were going to pull the king's heart away from God. There's that, un, there's that divided heart. It's not whole anymore. They were going to pull the king, and in this case Solomon, away from the Lord. And that's exactly what happened. If we go down to verse 4, it says, When Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God. There's a problem. In his pursuit of the things of this world, and his divided heart, this is where he ends up. It says, his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God as was the heart of his fa David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, goddess of fertility and sex, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites on the mountain east of Jerusalem. That's the Mount of Olives, okay? And depending on where he built it, the Mount of Olives is actually higher than the Temple Mount. And you can stand on the Mount of Olives and you can look down into the temple uh, area itself. The god Molech was the one that they sacrificed babies on. Solomon builds an altar to Moloch on the high place of the Mount of Olives. And babies are sacrificed and Moloch is the god of pleasure and you know, basically uh, materialism and stuff, whatever you want. Children are being sacrificed on the altar of Molech every day through abortion. Pursue pleasure and sacrifice the child. Things don't change. Like Solomon said, there's nothing new under the sun. It might have a different, you know, shade to it or whatever, but things haven't changed. And going down to verse 11 of chapter 11. God's angry with him. And it says, Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, Since this has been your practice, okay, this just wasn't a slip up. This wasn't just, man, God, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do that. This was his practice. Now this was his way of life. He was not wholly devoted to the Lord 
He was compromised. And you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you. I will surely tear the kingdom from you and give it to your servant. Yet for the sake of David, your father, I will do it, not do it in your days, but I will give it one tribe to your son for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. So what happens is God's calling Solomon on the carpet. Remember, God gave him wisdom. God gave him everything he needed to be a mighty, wonderful, good king. People said of Solomon, Hiram said it, the queen of Sheba said it, God loves Israel so much because he gave them you to be their king. What a blessing you are. But because he allowed his heart to be compromised and because he chased after the things of this world and he disobeyed the things of God, because he had a divided heart, it ended up with a divided kingdom. And there was pain and heartache and misery. And we all have been there, I know. When we do what God tells us not to do, it's not because God's a control freak. He doesn't want us to be hurt. He doesn't want less than his best for us. But when we go against him, it's just not going to end well. And so the kingdom is divided. And there was a guy named Jeroboam. He was a servant of Solomon. He was one of the overseers of the workers. And God sent, a, uh, God sent Abijah, the prophet, and said to, to Jeroboam, okay, this is what's going to happen. Because of what Solomon has done, God is tearing the kingdom apart. And God is giving you 10 of the tribes, and you will be king. And listen to what he says to Jeroboam uh, through Abijam, Abijah in uh, verse 38. We've heard this before. And if you will listen to all that I command you and will walk in my ways and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and my commandments as David my servant did, I will be with you and will build you a sure house as I built David. And I will give Israel to you, and I will afflict the offspring of David because of this, but not forever. And look at verse 40. Solomon sought therefore to kill Jeroboam. But Jeroboam arose and fled to Egypt, to Shishak, king of Egypt, and was in Egypt until the death of Solomon. I read that, and it's like, we've heard this before. Every king to this point, God has said, look, Obey me, fear me, keep my ways, and I will bless you. I'm with you. I'm behind you. I'm going to establish your kingdom. I'm all in, okay? All you got to do is follow me. And we see in verse 40, it says that Solomon wanted to kill Jeroboam, so he fled to Egypt. It makes me think of how Saul wanted to kill David. Solomon's at the point that Saul was, and saying, no, I'm going to preserve my kingdom and I'm going to kill the person that God has appointed to take the throne. This is the same old stuff. Going back to Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. And then the time comes where Solomon dies and Rehoboam ascends the throne. And the people of Israel come to Rehoboam and say, look, your dad taxed us real heavily at the beginning, things were great. 
But as Solomon deviated from the Lord and started doing what he wanted to do, things got heavy on the people. It wasn't a blessing to have him as king. And so they go to Rehoboam and say, look, your dad was really heavy handed on us and he taxed us. And so we're asking that you lighten the load. Okay, we'll follow you. We'll serve you. And Jeroboam was there with them. Okay. And it's like, we're, we're with you. Jeroboam was not trying to overthrow the, the kingdom. And Rehoboam went to the, the elders and they said, you know what? Your dad was harsh and you need to lighten the load. And they're like, or, and Rehoboam was like, well, let me check out with my buddies, you know? So he talked with his pals and they said, no, you just make it harder than ever. You put the screws to these folks and let them know who's boss. And that's what Rehoboam did. And it's then that Jeroboam said, you know what? We're not with you. We're leaving. See ya. And they left and re they didn't rebel. They just broke away from Judah. And so what happens is Rehoboam amasses the army to go after Israel and take them out. And what's interesting is in uh, verse 22, God says, sent Shemaiah, okay, a prophet. And he says uh, in verse 23, say to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, and to all the house of Judah and Benjamin, and to the rest of the people, thus says the Lord, you shall not go fight against your relatives, the people of Israel. Every man return to his home, for this thing is for me. Listen to this. So they listened to the word of the Lord and went home again according to the word of the Lord. So actually, Rehoboam says, no, this is what I'm going to do, and it falls apart. So now God says, this is what I want you to do. You back off. Go home. And Rehoboam and the people are like, okay, we'll obey the Lord. Now, interestingly, now God's promise to Jeroboam, he's going to bless him with a, a kingdom like David if he obeys him. Verse 25. Now, here's the issue. Rehoboam had pride. Jeroboam does not trust God. Okay? His heart is not wholly following the Lord. God has promised to him, but he doesn't trust God. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. And he went out from there to build Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to the Lord, their Lord, to Rehoboam, the king of Judah. And they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, the king of Judah. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. Does this sound familiar? We're going right back to the Exodus. Two, king, uh, two calves of gold. And he said to the people, you have, uh, you have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. That's the exact same thing that Aaron said when he made the calf. And he set one in Bethel and the other he put in Dan. And then he appointed priests and Levites just from the common people. And we'll see why in a second. So now he's going, wait a minute, they're going to go worship God three times a year. And if they do that, then they're going to be loyal. So rather than trusting God to take care of it, he says, I got to control this thing. So Dan is the northernmost city. 
And Bethel is the southernmost city in the region of Israel. And so he set the two calves up and says, okay, this is your God. You don't have to go to Jerusalem. It wasn't that God, that Jeroboam was just keeping the people away from Rehoboam. He was turning the people away from God. And God said, we're not going to have this. And God judged him. He sent a man. We don't even know who he is. He's just a prophet. And he goes up uh, and he confronts Jeroboam at the altar. And he says, you sin. God's going to destroy your family. He's ripping the kingdom out of your hand. You didn't obey him. You didn't trust him. You didn't follow him. And it's over. And so the dude, you know, Jeroboam, he gets upset. He, you know, stretches out his hand against the prophet. And as soon as he does, God hits it and causes it to just like crumple up and wither. And then he says, oh, you know, pray for me. Forgive me. I'm sorry. And so he gets prayed for. His hand is healed. The altar is broken by God. And then this is something that, that uh, the man prophesies. He says, O altar, O altar, this says the Lord. Behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and he shall sacrifice on you the priests of the high places who make offerings on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. The prophecy of the coming of Josiah that's 340 years down the road. But God identifies this young boy who would be king and bring revival to Israel. Not just Judah, but Israel. And clean house, top to bottom, 340 years before he was born. That's amazing. So God had this all figured out and all. But what's scary is Jeroboam refused to follow the Lord still. Jeroboam did not yield to the Lord. He continued to amass these priests from just the common people and all. And what happened was the very thing that he was afraid of occurred because the priests and the Levites in Israel and the people who loved God in Israel, when they saw what Jeroboam was doing, they left their homes, their property, everything they had, and they headed to Judah. And for three and a half years, three years, the people of God were with Rehoboam in Judah, worshiping the Lord, and things were just hopping in Judah. God was moving. They were prosperous. They were strong. God was blessing. And so Jeroboam has nothing now. Rehoboam is basking in the presence and the goodness of God's people in the Lord. And it's phenomenal. Jeroboam is about to lose everything. His son is going to die, little boy. So he sends his wife in secret to the prophet, Abijah. The little boy's name is also Abijah. And he says, or she, she goes in secretly. Now, Abijah, the priest, is blind now. He can't see. And so she's in a disguise. And she and Jeroboam know that the false gods they've been search or uh, promoting aren't going to fix the problem and don't have the answer. So they go to seek the true God, knowing that he is the one who has the answers. And Abijah is told by the Lord, hey, Jeroboam's wife is at the door. And uh, this is what I wanted to tell her. And so she comes in and she thinks she's deceiving him. 
And she goes, wife of Jeroboam, why have you come? She must have just, her jaw dropped, you know? You might be blind physically, but with the Lord, you can see things that nobody else can see. You know, Fanny Crosby, she was a hymn writer and people would say to her, she was blind. People would say to her, you know, so sorry that you can't see the things that God has made. And she says, I can see things that you can't even begin to dream of as she walked with the Lord, you know, spiritual sight. Sometimes maybe all the time is greater than any physical sight we could ever have. So the little boy dies. He's the only one that God allows to be buried. The rest of Jeroboam's family are eaten by dogs and birds. Bad stuff. So, while all that's going on, Rehoboam decides after he's become prosperous, I can do this on my own. And he starts promoting other religions, other gods, even to the point of having male cult prostitutes in the land and uh, high places of worship and all, and God takes them out. Sends Egypt against Judah, and God takes them out. And his son, Abijam, reigns in Judah. This is in the 18th year of King Jeroboam, according to chapter 15. Now, I want us to go over now to 2 Chronicles 13, and we're going to wrap up everything here because it gives us a little bit more detail. So Abijah reigns in Judah, chapter 13 of 2 Chronicles. And once he becomes king, Jeroboam amasses an army to go after him. And in verse 4, it says, Then Abijah stood up on Mount Zemariam, that is in the hill country of Ephraim, and said, Hear me, O Jeroboam and all Israel, Ought you not to know that the Lord God of Israel gave the kingship over to Israel forever to David and his sons by a covenant of salt? Yet Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, a servant of Solomon, the son of David, rose up and rebelled against the Lord, and certain worthless scoundrels gathered about him and defied Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, when Rehoboam was young and irresolute and could not withstand them. Going down to verse 12, Behold, God is with us at our head, and his priests with their battle trumpets to sound the call to battle against you, O sons of Israel. Do not fight against the Lord, the God of your fathers, for you cannot succeed. So Abijam at the forefront is relying on God, and God fights for them, and God gives them victory, and Jeroboam ends up dying. And in verse 21, we're told that Abijah grew mighty and he took 14 wives and had 22 sons and 16 daughters. But also what happened was he wasn't wholly devoted to the Lord and the nation went away from God again. So we finish up with Asa, his son. Chapter 14. He becomes king, they have peace, and the Ethiopian army rises up against them, verse 9. Zerah the Ethiopian came out against them with an army of a million men, 300 chariots, and came as far as Marashah. 
And Asa went out to meet him, and they drew up their lines in battle in the valley of Zephathah at Mereshah. And Asa cried to the Lord his God, O Lord, there is none like you to help between the mighty and the weak. Help us, O Lord, our God, for we rely on you. And in your name, we have come against this multitude. O Lord, you are our God. Let not man prevail against you. His dependency was on the Lord. God gave them victory. And when it was all done, chapter 15, verse 1, it says, The Spirit of God came upon Azariah, the son of Oded, and he went out to meet Asa and said to him, and here we've heard this before, Hear me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you while you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. For a long time, Israel was without the true God and without a teaching priest and without the law. They weren't following God. They didn't have priests that were teaching the word of God and they didn't have the word of God. That's critical. Going down to verse eight, as soon as Asa heard these words, the prophecy of Azariah, the son of Oded, he took courage and put away the detestable idols from all the land of Judah and Benjamin and from the cities that, had taken, that, had, that he had taken in the hill country of Ephraim. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that was in front of the vestibule of the house of the Lord. And then it goes on to say uh, that great numbers had deserted to him from Israel when they saw that the Lord his God was with him. People wanted God. They wanted the Lord. They were hungry. They knew. Just like Ecclesiastes talks about, the stuff of this life and false gods and stuff does not satisfy. We want God. We want to be where God is. And God moved. And God was there. And if you look at verse, uh, verse 17 of chapter 15, it says, The heart of Asa was wholly true all his days. There's the difference. He was sold out to God. Now, unfortunately, what we see is in his last days, he gets self-sufficient. He still loves the Lord, but he's self-reliant. And the king of Israel rises up. Jeroboam's gone, new king. And rather than relying on the Lord again like he did against the Ethiopians, he's got enough power, enough clout, and enough money. And he takes money from the temple to pay off the king of Syria to break off his alliance with Israel and not attack them. And it works. And God says, because you didn't trust me, the way that you did with the, the, the Ethiopians, Syria is going to come down on you. And you're going to have a problem. In his pride, Asa gets ticked off, has the poor prophet thrown in stocks, and takes it out on some of the people of Judah. And God strikes him with a foot disease that ends up taking his life four years later. He suffers for four years, and it says that he went to the physicians, but he would not seek the Lord. He was bitter against God. He was hacked with God, and he died. It was not that going to the physician is a bad thing, but he refused to seek the Lord. But he had a whole heart. 
But then he got self-sufficient, self-reliant, and he took matters into his own hands. And it takes us right back to chapter 12 of Ecclesiastes. Fear God and obey his commandments. That's what makes us whole. That's what will make our families whole, our relationships whole, our churches whole, is when we're not living for the things of this life. They're not bad things, they're God-given, they're wonderful, enjoy them. But have them balanced with that committed love and relationship with the God who gave them to us. And in that balance, we're whole. And we're able to enjoy the things of God. These kings, if they had just followed that instruction that God gave, not just in Ecclesiastes, but back in Deuteronomy, life would have been better for everybody. May we learn from that. May we not become self-sufficient, prideful, arrogant. May we not compromise and may we not seek after the things of this world. But seek first the kingdom of his God and everything else will be added to us. That's what Jesus said. Life's a lot easier when he's at the helm. 